close both of those doors real quick, brother. So uh, John chapter 21 is uh, where we're going to be uh, this evening, last chapter of the book of John. It says in verse 1, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, so this is uh, after the resurrection, and uh, we've had a few instances regarding the circumstance of Jesus' resurrection described here in the Gospel of John. The other Gospels contain more details uh, regarding the order of events there, but that's the uh, after these things that's being referred to. In verse 2 it says, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan, in uh, Nathaniel of Canaan in Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to, said to them, "I'm going fishing." They said to him, "We're going with you." Now, um, this statement, "I'm going fishing," some have viewed this as a sort of failure on Peter's part that now that Jesus' death and resurrection has taken place, that he's abandoning uh, the ministry. Uh, that's possible uh, to some degree. Uh, I think that more likely Peter is a responsible man with a very strong work ethic. He's owned his own fishing company uh, when he went and ministered with Jesus, uh, there were many who supported the ministries of Jesus and thereby the disciples. So they had provision and they had care. Uh, we know uh, from the writings of Paul that Peter had a wife. So his family's needs were being met in this process of following Jesus. We can safely assume that during this persecution and the apparent collapse of Jesus' ministry, that that support was gone. And essentially, Peter is saying, I have to take care of myself. I, I have to be responsible and uh, see to my own needs. So I'm going fishing is an, an unreasonable response for him at this point. Now, there are those that point to the fact that he went back to Galilee. And somehow this is an abandonment of, again, the responsibilities in the following ministry. Keep in mind two passages, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Jesus has given them these directions. You can also see in Matthew chapter 28, previous to that statement, beginning at verse 5, it says, The angel answered and said, verse 7, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Verse 10, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So Peter being in Galilee and returning to fishing isn't a long ways off from the mark from what Jesus has called him to do. You know, it really looks like, you know, maybe he is in a confused state along with others of the disciples given, you know, the sort of hard set direction they were going with Jesus for the three years, you can only imagine what suddenly all of that is ripped out from underneath you and you kind of land on your feet back in the fishing boat in Galilee where Jesus told you to go. I mean, you know, okay, it's got a certain sense of lost directionlessness, but at the same time, it might be Peter and the guys feeling really solid about what they're doing. You know, we're speculating on a decision made thousands of years ago. So it's not all that difficult of a, you know an understanding to look at here. You know, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going 
with you. Continuing there in verse 3, they went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Now that's, that's a discouraging endeavor, to go from the prosperity of your business into the prosperity of Jesus' ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and return to fishing, and nothing. You know, these waters used to yield profit to them, used to yield, you know, surplus and money. And now, at least on this first adventure, nothing. That, that can be discouraging when we put our hand to the plow and seemingly nothing comes in return. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul said, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You know, just because we don't see that first effort met with a great fruitfulness doesn't mean you stop the process. You know, the Lord really does. You know, there are those that imply, you know, even within Calvary Chapel, where God guides, God provides. Yeah, we do believe that, but it also requires hard work. You know, lots of toil in the process. Follow the Lord. Let him mold and shape. And there's a great lesson right within this chapter as we move on. It says, But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. It's, it's nice when you can tell Jesus has shown up at your job. You know, not just at church, when you can recognize, oh, he's here with me too. You know, when you get to church and you sing the songs and your heart is lifted, that's wonderful. And when you get into the drudgery of punching the clock and then you turn around and there's a circumstance that tells you Jesus is actually right here. That's, that's a huge blessing. So, you know, there, Jesus is on the shore and continuing in verse 4, it says, Yet, the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. Now, this, Children, have you any food, is actually a common statement in the fish market of the day. You know, when you see a boat uh, fishing, uh, you know, you might shout out, Hey, have you guys caught anything? And the, and the term children comes from what would best be translated to lads. Boys, hey guys, catch anything? Is the idea. And if the answer comes back yes, then they would respond with what you're asking price. You know, because thinking that if I can get it right off the boat, then I'm not going to have to pay the middleman at market is the common practice. So this is not um, a question about breakfast. It's not a question uh, even regarding, uh, you know, the whole process of uh, what they're going through. It has to do with the common sort of interchange of the public with fishermen in the water. You know, hey guys, got any catch? And it does unfortunately force the admission that they're unsuccessful. And, you know, and that's always, you know, discouraging when... Uh, you already have the sense of failure. You know, Jesus was going to be the Messiah. You were going to be involved in his cabinet and in his ministry. And that seems to have fallen apart. And now you've returned to the fishing trade that you know so well. And on your first adventure out, nothing's coming of that either. So, you know, have you caught anything? And the answer has to come back, no. Then he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. We're in John chapter 21 at verse 6. So, uh, cast on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now, this might have tested their ability to recognize God's guidance in seemingly ordinary ways, like someone saying that isn't, even fishing, giving you, a professional fisherman, advice on which side of the boat to throw your net off. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, these guys know what they're doing. And the response at this point probably ought to be something kind of 
sarcastic, you know, right side, left side, sort of, what does it matter? Um, everybody knows you got to fish off the starboard side. Well, I mean, are you pointed north or south? What difference does it make at this point, you know, starboard or port? It's really not you know, going to affect what you're doing in this case. Now, verse 6, interestingly enough, so they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Now, keep in mind, I'm sure you're remembering, they've experienced something like this before. Okay, In Luke chapter 5, you might want to put your bookmark there in John chapter 21, and go to Luke chapter 5, looking at verse 1. What it says, so it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partner on the other boat, or in the other boat, and came and helped them. They came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. The point a lot of commentators put forward in both of these cases is that in the case in Luke, their nets were breaking and their boats were sinking. Versus here, where their boat is still afloat and their net stays intact. So there's there's a slight difference, and maybe that's just stretching things a little too far, but there's a slight difference between similar efforts being done previous to Jesus' glorification. You know, that prior to the resurrection, when they were doing these things, even with divine help, sinking and breaking is not what you want to name your ministry. You know, the sinking and breaking ministry. You know, where, whereas, you know, the catch and intact ministry sounds a lot better. You know, surely, even if the catch is smaller, if there isn't destruction involved in the process, there's something about, better about it. So there's you know something to consider there. <clears throat> but it's a similar experience in John 21 and Luke chapter 5 <clears throat> that rings a bell, causes a realization and a recognition here that's unique. 21 verse 7, Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, he's going to reveal that by the end of the chapter, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, something interesting. John is the first to run to the tomb, see the resurrection, and realize the re resurrection. And here, he is the first to recognize Jesus in these circumstances also. I, I think that's part of the reason that we see what follows. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord... He put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and he plunged into the sea. A couple of speculations are made there. Um, commonly, uh, they would wear a two-part uh, outfit where there was a, a top garment and a lower garment, and um, sometimes uh, they would remove that top outer sort of jacket, and they would um, take their uh, robe, and they would... Uh, reach through and grab the back of it, pull it up to the front, and then take the front and fold it over and tie it around so that it was more like a pair of, you know, board shorts to the knee, something they could work in. So, uh, you know, he puts on 
his outer garment and you know to meet Jesus in this formal way there are those that actually speculate that when he plunged into the sea the fact that he put on his garments might have actually been an indication that somehow he thought he might be able to walk on the water I and mean, I think that that's conjecture I, you know I don't know it'll be interesting to ask Peter you know what were you thinking when you threw all of your clothes on and then jumped in the ocean but or into the you know the sea here the other disciples came in the little boat for they were not far from the land but about 200 cubits dragging the net with the fish so leave the other guys to the toil and the labor he wants to get uh, to uh, Jesus then as soon as they had come to land they saw fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread Jesus already has food when he calls out to them lads have you caught anything he's already got food it's important to recognize that Jesus doesn't need whatever resources we have he doesn't need them he's he's already got his own process going on if we want to add our resources to them add our fish and he's going to ask them in verse 10 Jesus said to them bring some of the fish you have just caught sure add that to what's going on but make no mistake Jesus is in a is not in a desperate place without us he's already functioning as the servant he's already preparing meal for them he, he's got other people in mind he, Jesus hasn't changed his character is the same as it ever has been and he wants to include these men in their circumstance Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish 130 or excuse me 53 and all there though there were so many the net was not broken wow if you've read the commentary on this passage it's astonishing how many different things people want to make out of the 153 fish you know 100 represents the gentiles 50 represents israel 3 represents the trinity you know you got all these different interpretations of it uh, i think that the 153 fish quite clearly without any question represent uh, 153 fish you know it's as simple as that and i do mean that you know i i uh you know i built many different towers and uh, you know i can tell you the heights of each one of those towers that i've you know been involved in you know if you ask me you know what type of tower was it i can tell you details about the tower i can tell you whether it was a four bolt leg whether it was a solid steel pyrod single bolt structure and all kinds of different details these are fishermen you know if they catch a big catch now how many fish did you catch you know 153 153 you know innumerable sank both the boats you know what I'm saying like they've got different ways of making sure people understand how intense their circumstance was uh, you can go ahead if you want to and read a bunch of those different commentaries uh, I think that that is an excellent example of where people want to over spiritualize and add things to the allegories within passages even within this passage you know seem to jump right off the pages there's no need to start trying to stick them in anywhere it's 153 fish and yet the nets don't break now something interesting in that all of these guys working together couldn't bring the net ashore peter goes down and on his own pulls the net ashore if a group of men working together cannot accomplish the task but one guy goes down and accomplishes that you know that guy's huge peter is historically referred to as being bigger and taller and stronger than all of the other disciples he, he was a huge burly old fisherman as best we can tell the estimation on the fishing nets of this style and design 
pulling in the fish of this quantity. This is not a fine little gill net. These are larger. They want the small fish to escape out through the net. They want the bigger fish. In the process, the estimation is over 300 pounds. So Peter goes down to the water's edge and grabs a hold of 300 pounds of wet net and fish and drags it up on the shore. That seems to be what we got going on. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Again, an indication he is still serving them. Nothing's changed. Jesus is the same in his character. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Now, it does here, this is one of the strongest indications, seem there is something unusual about the appearance of Jesus after his resurrection. Okay. There are a number of different ways we could guess at this. The most human of ways to think about this is that Jesus says to Thomas, do you need to put your fingers in the holes in my hands or here in my side? So he's got those scars. He's got those wounds, or at least the healed wounds, from those, he was scourged, right? So he's perhaps got those marks all over him now. He had his beard ripped out. He had a bag put over his head and was beaten and then plated with a crown of thorns. So this man could be very disfigured from all of that beating. Go a different direction with it altogether. He's in his resurrected, glorified body. Doesn't have the same humble appearance that he did previously. Go even further into the mystical. Some say that it was as though you just couldn't make him out. He was shrouding his own appearance so that he couldn't. And we see in certain cases where Jesus in crowds, people trying to capture him he just walked through their midst he holds power over creation so uh, whatever it is they can't distinguish him as being the jesus of previous there's something different about his appearance now now this statement in verse 12 they dared not ask him who are you that that uh, language construction in the Greek is saying that they dared not challenge him about his identity. So it wasn't just a matter of saying, hey, are you really Jesus? They, they, they dared not say, prove to us you are Jesus. Uh, you know, tell us about this personal experience we had with you when no one else was around if you're really jesus you know they've they've got insight that they could hold against him for verification and that's more what's being implied is they dared not challenge his identity when they were here with him because they knew who he was they knew that he was in fact jesus Verse 13, Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now that would mean that John recorded, because according to the scriptures, if you take all of the Gospels combined, uh, the third occasion of Jesus revealing himself to the disciples has already taken place so this is simply saying this is the third occasion john is aware of and puts into his own record here so i i bring it up because if you're you know reading the skeptics they say aha no this is actually like the seventh or you know or whatever you know they just want to make an argument this is the third occasion john is aware of in his record of uh, the accounts so verse 15 so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me 
more than these. Now, it's important to note that according to Luke chapter 24, verse 34, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5, give you those references again, Luke 24, 34, 1 Corinthians 15, 5, Jesus has already appeared to Peter alone. He's already had an encounter with Peter alone. Jesus now purposefully restores Peter in public. If Jesus wanted to, he could have carried out this conversation that we're about to read, which is very significant. He could have done that in private, and he doesn't. He makes sure that it's with a group of disciples who were witness and aware of his failure and are now going to be witness and aware of his restoration. You know, I, I go the other direction with this, and Spurgeon is the one who said, your repentance should be at least as public as your sin. To whatever degree we have failed, and the world is aware of that, the world should be aware of our repenting before Jesus Christ. It's not necessary always that everybody know every detail, but we should be public about our repentance and restoration. Now, here it's interesting to also note Jesus does not call him Peter you know, the rock or rocky. He calls him Simon, son of Jonah. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said, Simon, Peter, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Keeping in mind, right, Matthew chapter 26, verse 33, Peter had answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. He this bold proclamation that he's made previously about I love you more than anyone and everyone else can fail I'm going to stand at your side and that fell apart so now Jesus is asking do you love me more than these he said to him yes Lord you know that I love you he said to him feed my lambs now we're going to go through a few things here I'll just let the surprise out in the beginning, and then we'll sort of fit it in as we go along. He asks Peter twice, do you love me unconditionally? Jesus used the term agape. Okay, do you love me unconditionally? There are those that make comment on this passage that don't see any significance to Jesus' wording or Peter's response. Okay? If you know, we, we have the one word love. Okay. If if I said to you specifically, avoided the term love, and I said to you, Do you care for me unconditionally above all other things? I mean that's a pretty specific question. And you answered, you know we're friends. Everyone would be aware of the fact that I ask a high soaring question and you answer with a very controlled conservative response. You don't seem to meet the affection in the process. Do you love me above all else unconditionally? I, we're friends, you know. <laughs> he takes the low road. He takes the safe approach. We're also going to examine the fact that he says, Tend my sheep, you know, feed my lambs. Just feed my sheep, he says at the end. So he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Agape me. Do you love me unconditionally? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Literally he said, you know we're friends. He said, to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? That is where Jesus takes the low road 
and says, are we friends? He uses the term phileo, friends. And that is why I believe it says Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Are we friends? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, if we go through this in order, Jesus says, do you love me unconditionally? Peter answers, you know we are friends. The answer, feed my lambs, is fulfill the office of a shepherd for my lambs. It isn't just feed them. It's not just give them the food. It's, it's you have a role to play. You're, you are not just a food dispenser. Okay, There's something very significant in that. In, in the church today, there is an attitude amongst ministers of, I'm just a food dispenser. I, I don't get involved in these people's lives. I'm not. I, I'm not to be bothered with them. I don't. I don't get in, mixed up in their circumstances. What they do with their families. What they do with their behavior. What they do with their morality. That's their business. I'm just here to feed the sheep. That's not what Jesus is saying to Peter at all. He's saying you need to fulfill the office of shepherd and to thereby feed my lambs. And he uses that tender word of my lambs. The second question comes, do you love me unconditionally? Peter's answer then returns with, you know, we're friends. I mean, if I'm Jesus at this point, I'm starting to get discouraged. If I ask you twice, do you love me unconditionally? And you avoid by saying, you know, we're friends. I'm the one who's grieved as Peter becomes in verse 17, then again, tend my sheep is fulfill the office of being a shepherd by tending to my sheep. So now we've even moved away from the terminology of feeding. Tending the sheep, there's a lot involved with that. There's all kinds of things that happened to sheep. I had the opportunity a few years ago at a pastor's conference to listen to a presentation at a pastor's conference by a Scottish shepherd. And he's talking about how in one day, in 24 hours, it's very common for a sheep to go from completely healthy to totally dead in 24 hours. Their health can plummet that rapidly. They have to tend them all the time. The, the, the good shepherds, we talk about counting sheep, right? Jesus saying, I am the gate. This shepherd is saying that they stand at the gate and open it in the very narrow passage and call to the sheep and the sheep know their voice. They'll come to the gate and that shepherd will reach down and put his hands on each sheep as it's coming through and give it a little inspection and it does thousands of sheep going to check every single why because one sheep can drop off that quick and one sick sheep can infect and affect many other sheep very rapidly constant attention regular inoculation given to them you know giving them medicine uh reading up on some old ways they they use a pneumatic system now where they carry this pump jug on their back that has the medicine in it, and they pump that up with pressure, and they have a, a, a hand gun with, a, with this very uh, slick rubberized tubing, and they'll straddle the shoulders of each one of the sheep and hold their neck up, take that thing off the holster, and insert the tube right down their throat, and boom, with air pressure, shoot the medicine right down their throat, yank the tube out and hold their nose and their mouth closed and putting their hand very gently on their throat 
until they can feel them swallow two or three times the medicine and then let go of them and give them a little comfort as they go so they won't be scared of the shepherd because if they just give them the medicine and pull it away, that sheep will turn around his head and just blow the medicine all over it. Just forget it. It's not going to eat it. They, they have to tend to handle every single one of the sheep. What's most interesting is I'm thinking, have they always done this? Yes. They gave them nutrient, and they used to literally blow it down their throats with a tube. Insert the tube and blow it down. The, that also meant you had a strong possibility of getting it blown back in your face. Okay, This is a very personal, very intimate relationship between shepherd and sheep. Think about this. If you're going to get this intimate with them in tending to the sheep in the process, it isn't a matter of just putting the food or putting the medicine out. You're going to have to get face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth with these things at time. And, you know, a, a human being created in the image of God caring for this foolish animal who is so dumb it will wander off and fall down in the mud. Just, oh, didn't realize this was soft ground. Tip right over. Now the wool is so absorbent. Suck up the mud. Now I can't move. I'm upside down. They call it casting. They get cast upside down and die. So counting sheep? Yeah, no, these, these are all real terms. But leave the 99, go and find the one? Why? Because that sheep's absence may very well affect other sheep. She may be feeding other lambs in the flock. Her absence literally can cause such depression in other animals that they'll stop eating and die within the next day or two. The flock needs to be tended to. The care has to be constantly there. Both the shepherds in the church and the flock have developed an attitude like this is not the relationship the Lord wants. The sheep are like, hey, 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 what are you here trying to ram all of this stuff down my throat? I take the Bible however I want it. Who are you to tell me how to live according to the Bible? Pastors are like, hey, 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 what am I doing going out and trying to work at these, their business? They don't want to eat. They don't have to eat. Not according to what Jesus is saying and doing right here. He's saying if you're going to be in the flock, then you're going to have to care for it. You love me unconditionally, Peter? Fulfill the office of feeding my lambs, these tender little creatures. You love me unconditionally, Peter? Then fulfill the office of tending to the sheep. Lastly, Jesus dumbs it down. And says, you know, okay, I'm paraphrasing. I've said it twice, Pete. Do you love me unconditionally? You seem to only be able to answer me that we're friends. So I'll ask you this third time. Are we friends? That's why Peter is grieved. Because the third time, he takes it down to Peter's level. Okay, so we're only going to enter on the friendship level. Okay, then, tell me this, Pete. Are we actually friends? That's why Peter's response is so interesting. He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. It isn't how it's written. It's you know better than I do if I love you. Peter is recalling probably Matthew 26, 33, where he said, I will die at your side, and then failed. He stood He stood inside that courtyard on a freezing cold night, according to the scripture, warming himself at the fire with the guards who had brutally arrested and were going to beat Jesus. He's warming himself at those coals, and now he's sitting at the coals of a fire, warming himself in the cool of the morning as Jesus is feeding him breakfast asking, are we actually friends? You got to know, Peter is just saying, you know better than I do. And then, feed my sheep. 
even the mature ones, Peter. You know, you got lambs, you got the sheep. Now I want you to feed the mature ones. I want you to fulfill the office of feeding my sheep. Not, not just giving them the substance. The verb used has a much bigger sense than simply feeding. It is the exercise of the office of shepherd. That is why 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, Peter admonishes the leadership of the church saying, shepherd the flock of God which is among you serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Eagerly be the shepherd of these flocks, of the lambs, of the uh, owned substance, because Jesus is the shepherd. But Peter and we have been commissioned to shepherd the flock ourselves. Now in 21.18, Peter having been restored, it shifts a little by Jesus saying, Most assuredly I say to you, yet when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. The way that plays out in the Greek language, depicts crucifixion. You're, you're going to be, um, you know, Jesus was stripped naked to be crucified. You used to wear whatever you want to when you're younger. You're going to be made to wear what you're told, and you're going to have your hand stretched out is the idea of crucifixion, stretched out like Jesus was stretched out, side to side, hands stretched out and crucified, is what's being said to Peter. Just a little more than 30 years after that, this statement right here, Jesus is, uh, Peter is going to be crucified. And th there, within this, there's actually a strange sort of comfort. If you think about it, Peter has said, I will die at your side. And, and it would seem that he actually made an attempt at fulfilling that in the garden. When he took out the sword, there were more than 600 Roman soldiers there. When, when, when Pilate said that I will give you a guard, and then you read that there was a Roman cohort that went and accompanied the uh, priests and the guards from the temple, that's, that's more than 600 Roman soldiers that came to arrest Jesus in the garden. Peter rips out his sword and starts swinging. You don't do that in the company of 600 armed soldiers and walk away from it very often. Peter was making an attempt to prove he would die at Jesus' side. That seems to evaporate, and now he's denying even knowing Jesus in front of a little girl. That's going to bring him low. Now Jesus is saying the day is going to come where you will be crucified. That, in a, in a strange way, has to be a certain level of comfort to Peter. That I made a bold claim before and I failed so miserably at. Now Jesus is telling me that I'm going to be crucified. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. When he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now, the present perfect text that that's said in is, keep on following me. Think about it. When Jesus started with Peter, that's what he said to him. Peter was fishing. Jesus said, follow me. Now Jesus comes to this place where Peter is fishing again, and Jesus says, keep on following me. Even though I've told you, you're going to be crucified at some point. I want you to keep on following me because there would be the second hesitancy at this point to say, I know that Jesus is as serious as death. He told me over and over again, gee, he was going to be crucified and it took place. I was witness to it. 
So when he's telling me right now, the day is coming where my hand is going to be stretched out in crucifixion, then I've got to believe that that's going to happen. And then those words come, keep on following me. You got to know that as the days grew dark and the hours grew short to where that crucifixion was becoming more and more clear for Peter, those words of keep on following me must have rung in his ears. You see, he, he has the perfect lens of resurrection, Peter does, to view his coming crucifixion through. So it's not going to make it any easier. Well, if you've witnessed Jesus die and be buried and then resurrected in front of you, and then Jesus says, follow me into this, you're going to be battling with yourself as you come to that moment where your flesh and everything you understand from a worldly sense is saying, run for your life from this. And then at the same time, the elements of faith are going to be saying to you, you can trust Jesus Christ in this. You can walk through this thing with him. 21.20, then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? You follow me once again. Keep on following me. Then this saying went out among the brethren, that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will, what that he remain till I come, what is that to you? The fact that John was the last surviving disciple, having survived attempts to kill him, gave strength to the rumor that, he was going to remain alive until Jesus came. That's why he clarifies this at the end, that no, Jesus didn't say I wasn't going to die. Then he gives us the reveal in verse 24. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. He, he just can't get out of the third person the way that he writes even as he's telling you you know i am that disciple he's still referring to himself as you know uh his testimony is true a third person is something that john falls very accustomed to 25 and there are also many other things that jesus did which if they were written one by one i suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. John uh, gives us this tremendous view of Jesus' entire ministry. And then the Lord, as he just described, allows him uh, to remain. And most significantly, gives to John Revelation. The book of Revelation becomes most significant to the church. The first 100 years, uh, the church was clinging uh, to those writings as the persecution came. Much of the way John writes his gospel is very spiritual in its sense, very elevated in its approach. Without question, it is the book that I recommend new believers begin reading. You know, a lot of people, you know, will say things like, you know, start in Genesis or they have, you know, start in Proverbs or here or there. John is a book that, um, you know, at times people read it and they say, well, look how deep this is right here. It would be difficult for a new believer to understand. Without question, I agree. That's why I recommend it. So that when they come to the deep moments, it, it causes them to raise questions. Well, what is this? How can this mean? I don't understand so that they will actually begin to learn the process of discipleship, going and asking 
more and much more Christians. What is this? What does this mean? How do I understand this process? So now having come to the conclusion of the book of John, I think it's uh, very important for us all uh, to to uh, you know move forward. Next week we're going to embark on the book of Acts and uh, start that study uh, together. Uh, I, you know, having one more time looked at a gospel, we'll then move forward into you know how does the church then take Jesus' teachings and begin to apply it to itself. So beautiful end to. Uh, and the book of John, and uh, in particular, Peter's struggle to see uh, that full circle approach to you know someone who was called into service with the Lord, his his uh, you know teaching, his his life and ministry failed miserably, you know, especially in Peter's mind. You know, we can look at it and go, it's kind of understandable, you know, for Peter who had. You know, lifted himself up to the place of, I'm going to die at your right hand. I'll be your only defender, even if everybody else fails. And to fall so rapidly so far to see the close of the book with uh, that restoration. It's a wonderful thing. I, I think it's significant. I know I'm just kind of tagging the end here with uh, certain thoughts. But Peter, you know, wrote, co-wrote the book of Mark with John Mark. So the things that Peter wanted included, in, including some pretty embarrassing moments, are included in the book of Mark. Um, I, and yet John, uh, who Peter seems to have a certain level of competition with, is the one who was most faithful to record Peter's restoration by Jesus. I, I, I find a very loving um, endearment in that. That, that these men who serve the Lord together, you know, saw fit to not only expose one another's weakness for the benefit of the church, that they could see these men are human, but then also to, you know, elevate uh, their restoration in Christ's grace in their life also. So wonderful example for all of us. We'll embark on the book of Acts next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. I should have said earlier also, um, next third or this coming Thursday uh, being uh, Thanksgiving, there will be no midweek service. We're going to take the time to be with our families over Thanksgiving. So why don't we stand and we'll pray together. Father God, we thank you for your love and the way that you work in our lives. And Lord, I ask that you would minister to us. That like Peter, the areas of weakness in our lives, we would hear your voice calling us to restoration. Work in our hearts. Strengthen us, we pray. Guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stay in fellowship as long as you can. God bless.